Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You are listening to Killer. This is the Golden State Killer Victim Impact Statements Part 2. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Okay, so next we have a statement from the daughter. She was also a victim of Claude Snelling, who was murdered. Uh, I believe this was the Golden State Killer's first suspected murder victim. This was all when uh, Beth was at home and the Golden State Killer tried to abduct her from her house. At this point, Beth was being drugged from her home and a struggle ensued and her father, Claude, ends up getting shot and killed. But she'll tell you the story in her own words. Have a listen. Admitted the uncharged acts as follows. Kidnapping with intent to commit rape of Elizabeth Snelling, having occurred on September 11th, 1975 in the county of Tulare, a violation of Penal Code Section 209. Is there any member of the victim's family that wished to be heard as to the charge of murder in the first degree, as well as uh, kidnapping the intent to commit rape. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, ma'am. My name is Elizabeth Hupp, and I would like to talk to you about my father, Claude Snelling, who saved my life when I was just 16 years old. It had been all over the local news about the man they called the Visalia Ransacker, who was breaking into people's houses, going through underwear drawers, and taking items of no value. I could never imagine that the man who had been stalking me and peering in my bedroom window during the previous months would end up changing my life forever. My father caught him twice peering in my bedroom window when he came home from teaching night school and tried to chase him down, but was unable to catch him. On one occasion, I had even caught him myself peeping in my window when I had a feeling someone was out there. He took off when I saw him and screamed, and my dad and boyfriend ran after him, but he had too much of a head start and got away. Little did we know that the man stalking me was actually a police officer someone who is sworn to protect people and not to terrorize and harm people. On September 10th, 1975, I went to bed like any other night without a care in the world. 
A few hours later, my world was turned upside down. At approximately 2 a.m., I was awakened by an intruder, Joseph D'Angelo, who was wearing a ski mask and pointing a gun at me, saying that he was taking me with him and that if I made any noise, he would kill me. My father must have heard me crying and woke up. D'Angelo had dragged me out of the house, out the back door, and through the gate that separated our backyard from the carport and driveway, all the while having a gun pointed at my head. When we were under the carport, I heard my dad yell something and saw him pause in the kitchen just for a moment before he charged out of the house through the back door near us. D'Angelo fired two shots, hitting my dad. He then turned the gun on me as I was down on the ground. My only thought was, this is it. And put my head down, expecting him to kill me. Instead, he started kicking me in the head and face, then ran off down the driveway. I ran back into the house to find my dad had collapsed at the front door and my mom hovering over him. I know in my heart that he was still trying to save me by going through the front door and cutting him off in the front yard, but he never got that far. My dad lay at the front door, bleeding to death. <laughs> and ended up dying on the way to the hospital. I truly believe that if anything had happened to me that night and he couldn't save me, that that would have killed him. For many years, I felt guilt for what happened that night. I felt that maybe there was something I could have done or said to warn my dad to stay there and never come out. It wasn't until I became a parent myself that I realized there was nothing I could have said that would have kept my dad from trying to save me. My mom always said that it wouldn't have mattered if there were 20 men out there with guns, that wouldn't have stopped them. My dad was such a gentle soul and loving, kind-hearted man who loved his family more than anything. My dad died saving my life that night, and he is my hero. <laughs> my dad and I were always very close, and I loved him so much. We loved to go hiking in the mountains together, and we had some great talks. He was such a wonderful dad, was never judgmental and wouldn't preach to me. Instead, through talking about a situation I was dealing with, whether it was school, friends, or boys, he would help me figure things out on my own. My mom and dad both had a very strong faith in God and we were always very active in the church. My dad taught Sunday school and Bible studies and he was an usher and a deacon. However, his faith and goodness did not end at the church doors. It filled every part of his personal life with his family and friends and his professional life as a journalism professor at College of the Sequoias with his colleagues and students. I believe he absolutely loved every aspect of his life. Our strong faith in God is what helped my mom and me and my two brothers who were just 14 and seven at the time get through the tough years following my dad's death. <clears throat> we somehow managed to stay in the same house, but with added security. <clears throat> I slept in my mom's room for the next year because I was too afraid to sleep in my bedroom and be by myself. Knowing that my dad's murderer was never caught and was still out there somewhere left us all feeling very vulnerable. I was told by the detectives that since I was the only living witness to my dad's murder, there was a chance he could come after me. The police gave us extra security and patrolled our neighborhood every night to keep watch on our home, but I still lived in fear. Eventually, with God's help and 
the love and support of our family, friends, and our church family, our fear and grief lessened with time, and we started getting on with our lives. My mom never worried that the murderer was not caught. She always said he would face judgment from God eventually and turned it over to him. I started to believe that myself as well, and I didn't want to waste my life worrying that he was out there and could come back. On, tw on April 24th, 2018, I was shocked when I was informed that Joseph D'Angelo was arrested in Sacramento and would be facing 13 murder charges, including my dad's. I truly never thought I would live to see that day, but unfortunately, my mom did not. We are also relieved and thankful for the perseverance of so many people who did not give up trying to solve this case. I would personally like to thank the Tulare County District Attorneys, Tim Ward and David Alavesos, and Renee Newman, the Tulare County Victims Advocate, as well as Detective James Cummings of the Visalia Police Department for keeping me informed and guiding me through these past two years. You have helped me deal with all of this more than you know. <clears throat> Next month, on September 11th, it will be 45 years since my dad was taken from us. He was only 45 years old at the time, in the prime of his life. Not having him here as part of my life left a huge hole in my heart. My dad was not around to walk me down the aisle when I got married, and our children were never able to know him. He would have been a wonderful grandpa. What sickens and angers me the most is that D'Angelo was able to live a normal life with his family for all those years. Well, my family and I could not be with my dad. I am so thankful that he will at least spend the rest of his miserable life in prison. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. So there you have Elizabeth Hupp, AKA Beth Snelling, giving her side of uh, of the account of events from her victim impact statement. Well, what'd you make of that, Craig? Well, she did recount that that was the first, you know, potential murder from the Golden State Killer, correct? Yes. So, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know what to say. I, it, it's just hard to listen to some of these things because even, you know, 45 years removed, the, the emotions that you hear from these victim statements is just, Hey, you can't imagine putting yourself in their shoes and having to live with that for this long and to experience what they experience. It's just, it's kind of just nerve wracking to me to listen to some of this stuff. Yeah, it is. It's heart wrenching. I mean, the fact that this guy was, you know, peeping in her windows like days and weeks before and they kept catching him, which was kind of, you know, all things considered, that was a little strange from what we know. You know, that didn't happen all too often where people suspected him or not him specifically, but, you know, a prowler. You know, occasionally you'd have people who would notice a prowler, but they wouldn't think anything of it. And then, like, you know, something happens and it's like, oh, yeah, I did see that guy wandering around that seemed a little suspicious. But in the moment, they knew somebody is peeping in their windows. Like something's going on. And, like, he still had the balls to to continue on and then it escalated to a murder for his own self-defense, you know, because at this point this isn't like when he's in full murder people mode, this was a strictly a self-defense act. Like I I'm caught. I need to get the F out of here and I need to, you know, for self-preservation, I need to shoot this guy. And the amazing thing is this doesn't stop him. You know, this is, this is where it really escalates from here. I just thought that was powerful. Yeah, it, it was very powerful. And I was just thinking to myself, it, she stated that her dad had ran him, him away a couple other times. I wonder if this last time and the actual attack that took place, he decided, well, I'm going to bring my gun this time. And if this guy gets in my way, I'm going to take him out and still fulfill what I'm there to do. Yeah. And he also had the strategy of, you know, trying to get her out of the house and, you know, I think this is where he then changes his tactic. Like, this was probably going to be one of the first, if not the first, uh, rapes that he ends up committing. 
And I think that he was originally going to kind of kidnap people, you know, and then it turned into, I'm going to come in your home, I'm going to tie you up <laughs> and, and do all that stuff. So I just thought that was interesting um, to hear from her. I thought it was powerful. It made me really sad. You know, I, I feel terrible for, you know, obviously her father was murdered and, you know, it's just, it's horrible. It's truly horrible. And to hear it from her, you know, this is one of the things, one of the events in this case that is very popular. People know this one. They talk about it a lot. And, you know, it's just uh, hearing her side of the story in the courtroom setting was just, it was really moving. Yeah. And and we've said it when we were covering, covering the case originally that there are so many instances where everyone knows hindsight is twenty twenty, but her her father had ran him away a couple of times, but you know, what if he had got to the point where I'm like, I better go buy a gun because something's weird going on here. You know, the first time there's a peeper outside the window, yeah, maybe run him away. But then, it, it, you know, it, who knows? You, you can never predict what's going to happen in any situation. And he may have still, you know, been shot and killed, unfortunately. But if he would have been more prepared from a self-defense standpoint, from his standpoint, the the whole narrative could have been different. But, you know, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. There's been several opportunities where this guy could have been taken out, and he seems to have a little bit of luck on his side to go for that long, for sure. Oh, absolutely. He was definitely tough to catch, smart enough to evade police, potentially had access to, you know, police radios or something that we don't know about, and he was able to, you know, escape and get out of there. So he had he had to have some kind of advanced knowledge of what the cops were up to and being that he was a former police officer either he just had a really strong sense of what they were going to do or he actually had access to figure out what it was they were going to do that being said uh let's move on the sister of Janelle Cruz Michelle Cruz gave a pretty impactful and emotional statement so let's have a listen to that Joseph D'Angelo is the one responsible for Janelle's death 34 years ago when he snuck into our family home on the evening of May 4th, 1986. I wonder if he recalls. Janelle was dead shortly after, which was May 5th, 1986. I wonder if he remembers the details. I wonder if he remembers Janelle, my sister, fighting him off. She was fighting for her life. My question is why? Why? I wonder why Janelle. I wonder what made him plan and deliberately torture her. She was only 18 years old and she had a bright future ahead of her. Janelle was my big sister and only one year older than me. She was the one person who always had my back for 17 years of my life. Janelle and I were very close. She was my best friend. She was what I knew. When Joseph D'Angelo took Janelle's life away, I lost my identity. He beat and tortured my sister brutally. My sister had a lot of hard times growing up, but she was finally on a good path. She had dreams of going to college, living in her first apartment, getting married, having children, and so many more things. Joseph D'Angelo took all that away from Janelle the night he brutally raped and murdered her. Not only did he take all that away from her, but he also took dreams away from me and my mom. My five-year-old brother never got the chance to grow up with his big sister. But during the next 32 years, Joseph D'Angelo got married, raised his children, bought a home, went on vacations, and became a grandfather. He basically had a good, full life. On the other hand, I will never be an aunt. My kids will never have cousins. My mom will never see her daughter go to college or get married. Joseph D'Angelo took everything from us. He's a selfish, 
sadistic, calculating, cruel, pathetic piece of scum. What he did to my sister on May 4th, May 5th, 1986 was more than evil. He brutally beat my sister beyond recognition. And because of this, she had a closed casket funeral. No normal person can do what he did to Janelle. And I feel sorry for his soul. Before May 4th, May 5th, 1986, Janelle and I had a lot of friends. We were into music and going to the beach. We were living a good life for the most part. One of our favorite songs was Mr. Blue by Yaz, but we had many favorites. The night he tortured and killed my sister, she had the radio on listening to music. It was still on when her lifeless body was found on her bed. When Joseph D'Angelo was finished, he took all the bindings off her wrists and ankles, but the marks were still visible. Janelle recently had her braces taken off just before he bashed her teeth out. They were in her lungs and in her hair. For 34 years, I've struggled with the vision of the torture he put her through that night. It haunts me daily and I cry for her all the time, even today. I wonder if Joseph D'Angelo has any remorse. After I got the call and was told my sister was murdered, I came home from Mammoth Mountain where I had been on a skiing vacation. I came home, but I was never really able to come home again. I was 17 years old and I had nowhere to go. My house was taped off. So I stayed in hotels and at friends' house until I was able to rent a room in someone else's home. I did not return to high school, but I eventually was able to get my degree. I lost most of my friends because no one, no one knew what to say to me after that monster murdered my sister. That unforgivable act completely turned my world upside down. We had no more holidays or family get-togethers. He ruined that too. For 32 years, I was constantly looking over my shoulder, wondering who killed my sister. I was always wondering if it was somebody I knew. How did he meet Janelle? Why was Janelle his last victim? Did he kill anyone else after her? After 20 years of living life depressed and scared from the murder and loss of my sister so brutally by that man, I decided to start looking for her killer. I wrote to every media outlet telling the story Joseph D'Angelo created until finally they started writing me back and asking for interviews. Soon after, the case was getting more recognized and people from all over the country were reaching out to me with persons of interest to be looked at. During the same time, I was researching many of my own friends and their family members and even some very, very bad people. I spent 10 long years looking for the killer, Joseph D'Angelo. My kids were growing up without me mentally because most of my time was devoted to finding the person responsible for killing my sister. Many family members were angry with me and told me I was putting them in danger when I came out as an advocate for justice while trying to track down the killer. But finding him was more important than the fear I felt. Men, many family members told me to give it to God and I said to them, I did and this is the path he put me on. My path was to keep pushing and advocating to keep this case active and in the spotlight. I wanted to let the world know the havoc Joseph James D'Angelo created in the lives of so many people in the last 45 years. He destroyed so many families. While he was living his best life fishing on his boat, all of our families were struggling to find answers. Thankfully, on April 24th, 2018, we got our answers. When I was told my sister's murderer had been caught, I cried and cried for hours. Finally, 
I would not have to spend six to eight hours a day looking for answers anymore. I could finally relax. I could finally start living and enjoying special moments with my kids and my family. I could stop looking over my shoulder and fear of him sneaking up on me. All those sleepless nights with dressers propped in front of my doors and windows and lights on all night are over. No more thinking he would try and find and kill me too. I do not have to keep moving house to house to stay undetected by him. All the things that haunted my mind for 32 years, I could finally try and release. He no longer has control over my mind because I know he will never be free again. I am damaged, but for the last two years, I have been trying to put trust, I've been trying to trust people again. I've been working on myself and I'm trying to put my life together and find happiness. Slowly, I'm putting myself together and I'm thankful to all those who have stuck by my side for the last 34 years. Like Leslie, who's here today, Dina and Michael, they are my rocks. I'm thankful to law enforcement who never gave up, especially Erica Hutchcraft, who listened to me almost daily for many years with what ifs. And Larry Poole and Anne-Marie Schubert, Carol Daly, here from Sacramento, are my heroes. While trying to find Joseph D'Angelo, I met other victims who I've become close friends with, like Debbie Domingo and Jane Carson Sandler. We've cried together because of our grief, but found good friendships. Now my time is no longer concentrated on who killed my sister, but rather on finding happiness and enjoyment, which I had lost because of Joseph D'Angelo 34 years ago. From now on, while he is withering away in prison, I will be spending my days fishing on the river, enjoying my family and grandchild, eating out, relaxing in the comfort of my home, free. I will be free of the fear he put me through for so long. I will go on without him controlling my every thought. Now I know who killed my sister, Janelle. Joseph D'Angelo did. I am happy and content with the fact that he is behind bars. I am saddened for his children and grandchildren to live the rest of their lives knowing what he has done. But finally, his family and friends and coworkers will know the truth about him. Now they know who he truly is a vicious rapist and murderer, nothing more. And I hope he rots. Thank you, ma'am. So there you heard from Michelle Cruz, a uh, very moving statement. Craig, what'd you think of that? Yeah, very powerful statement indeed. Yeah, she, she gave a, a very good recount of what it was like in her earlier childhood with Janelle and, and growing up. And it, so many times the story was the same. It was a, you know, a happy family. She, she admitted they had some rough spots, but, you know, growing up with her, her sister was just a year older than her. It sounded like they had a much younger brother, which at the time Janelle would have been 18 and her little brother was five. So just another family destroyed by this guy. And the one thing that really stood out to me listening to that, to that statement was it, the very graphic details of the assault and the rape. I I don't recall picking up on that the first time we had discussed this part of the case, but he said she had to have a closed casket ceremony because he beat her so relentlessly that she was almost unrecognizable. She had teeth in her lungs and her hair. I mean, my God, you look at the guy in the courthouse, he's this frail-looking old man, and to try to imagine him doing that, granted, 40 years ago, he's much younger, but you know, what drives a person to so viciously attack someone and, and beat them like that? What 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 drives them? It's just crazy to think about. That's that's the million dollar question. You know, what motivated this guy to go out and terrorize so many people who had nothing to do with him? And like, you know, th there's no way that the amount of people he affected that any of them had anything to do with him. They were all like randomly chosen for whatever sick purpose he had for them. And it was very vicious in the end when he went to his true murdering original night stalker phase, you know, he was 
beating people to a pulp and bashing their heads in. You know, he would cover them with their blankets and then just beat them with some large, heavy object. And I don't know, he he's really, really, really sick. And, you know, you mentioned how frail he is. And I guess I was going to mention this a little bit later, but we can we can talk about it here. So when he was arrested, he was a nice, portly fellow. He was uh, overweight, but he was he looked, you know, quote unquote healthy, you know. He he had, you know, a decent amount of weight on and everything. And then when he started going through his court proceedings, he started slowly withering away and he'd be wheeled into the court uh, in a wheelchair. And when he would be asked to speak, he would speak in a very faint and, you know, strained voice. And, you know, for instance, the judge would say something to him and he'd be like, yes, your honor. Like it was real quiet and whispery. And come to find out, uh, D'Angelo's been uh, Spider-Manning in his cell, if you will, and climbing all over shit, uh, putting things, uh, you know, papers over the lights, which is really strange because you could draw the parallel to when he would rape people and cover their TVs and lamps and things with blankets and stuff. And he was he would jump from like his bunk bed up on top of the sink, and he's moving totally fine. This guy is one hundred percent faking the frail act the entire time, and it's to gain sympathy. It, that's all this is. He's trying to play people and manipulate them. He's such a fucking control freak. That's all this guy is. And Jan- Janelle's sister said in her statement, "I can finally like relax. He he doesn't control my mind anymore." And that's what it was for him. He was controlling everyone's minds. That's all this was about was control. And they say that about a lot of uh, rapes, that the rapist, it's a control thing. It's not a sexual thing. And clearly, I mean, the way that his went down, he would come in, he would control you, he would tie you up, he would threaten you, he would eat your food, he would roam your house, he would do all of these things to put you in a state of fear and panic. And the theme of every one of these victims was that I no longer live in fear of his control of my thoughts because he's captured. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're right. Yeah. The video of him in the jail cell was, you know, eye opening because he completely trying to control everybody's perception of him being this frail old man. But then, I mean, he should have known that they have cameras on him 24 seven. I mean, he's isolated in his own cell. And like you said, he, he's cleaning the floor in his cell with a towel under his foot, you know, almost kind of dancing around, uh, wiping his floor clean. The next thing you know, yep, he hops up on his bed, hops up on his little desk, and he's covering the lights up. And it's it's just weird, <laughs> to be completely honest. It's just very strange. 100%. So moving on from uh, Michelle's statement, Joe's defense attorneys take their shots at reading some letters that were provided to them on behalf of D'Angelo. And these are letters, you know, kind of stating what kind of man he was in the eyes of some of his friends and family. Have a listen. This is from his sister. I feel moved towards writing this so that my brother Joe will know that my love for him will never go away. That's to say also that my sadness does not fade regarding the charges against him. As I think back and try to more clearly understand it all, so many things come to mind. Don't misunderstand that I am searching for an excuse for it all, because I'm not. I do more or less blame our father in part. He was a stern military career man and also a womanizer. He was also responsible for causing abuse in our family, mainly being hard on Joe and our mother. 
both mental and physical abuse was usually directed to them. It got to be more than I and my siblings could stand, so we all chose to leave home at early ages. I left at 15, and my siblings followed before any of them turned 18. There were so many other things that Joe faced, and I'm sure he couldn't cope with it all. Of course, it will never justify what has happened. And I can only express my deepest sympathy to all of the survivors and to the families of the victims. May God bless each of you. This is from a niece. Joseph James D'Angelo is my uncle, not by blood, but by marriage. I've known him my whole life. I was in their wedding when I was five. I've lived with them on and off throughout the years, spent all summers with them and most weekends. If I couldn't get there by bus, Joe always came and got me. Life with them was good. It was a dream. My life for once felt normal. My home life was troubled. I was verbally and physically abused by my dad. I didn't want to live anymore. It was just torture. Joe stepped in and said he, she can live with us. That was the beginning of my new life with Joe. He saved my life. I didn't know how good life could be. He taught me everything, always taking me out for driving lessons. He was so patient. Just try again, he'd say. I wasn't used to that. I'm used to getting yelled at and hit for making mistakes. Joe was kind and loving. He played games with me. Joe, out of anyone in my life, has always been my favorite person. I always wished he were my dad. He made my life peaceful. He is a part of why I am good, kind, and loving person I am today. This is my story. This is the truth. I'm thankful I had him in my life. I wouldn't be here today. Thank you, Council. Mr. Chris. Good morning. My family met the D'Angelos when Joe was 13 years old. We were living on Mather Air Force Base. Homes were duplexes, so in a manner of speaking, we were neighbors. I became good friends with Connie. My little brothers played with Johnny. Joseph became good friends with my brothers, and later very close with my family. Joe became another brother, and my parents treated him as they did their own five sons. Joe called my parents mom and pop. Mom and dad were sparse with the hands-on punishment, but didn't hesitate to verbally correct us, and Joe was included. We were always having family get-togethers, and Joe was always a part of the fun. Every holiday was a big celebration, and Joseph was included. On Christmas, Joe always had a gift for mom and pop. Joseph and my brothers did the typical teenage things, fishing, shooting their BB guns, talking about girls and cars, going to the movies and swimming at the river. Then they were old enough to buy cars, and it was load the car with their buddies and drive-ins, here we come. While we were at Mather Air Force Base, it became clear that household chores, cooking, and other household chores were Joe's responsibilities. He was responsible for his brother and sister, making sure they were fed, homework done, baths, and bed on time. Joe had to make sure the house was cleaned, his mother worked, and of course his father had a job as well. All this responsibility on a 13-year-old child was too much. He didn't really have a lot of time to goof off like other 13-year-old boys do. He wasn't in baseball, and later high school and junior high, he didn't participate in sports. He showed no interest because his father didn't take an interest in sports or his son. Joe never complained or aired his feelings about things that bothered him. He was not a braggart. I always remember him as smiling, laughing, and enjoying being around the family. I remember nights when my mom was so tired, but she couldn't go to bed because several of my brother's buddies were gathered to discuss girls and dating, and mom always made time for them. She answered their questions and listened to them. Joe was there on several occasions. He came to the house quite often. 
After joining the military, he always spent time with the family, went home on leave. He brought mom gifts from different ports of call. When Joseph graduated from high school, joined the military, became a police officer, got married and had children, the entire family was proud of him just like we were with every accomplishment of each other. Joseph was a close friend, another brother, respectful to mom and pop and always polite. He was helpful and considerate. I never heard a foul word come out of his mouth. When Joe married and their first child came along, my sister and I took turns babysitting for them. Joe would be sleeping or grocery shopping or baking or paying bills. Sometimes he would be working on his radio-controlled boats. Not just a kit, but six to seven-foot boats he would take to Nimbus Lake and we'd go along to watch. When we were babysitting at noon, we drove to the McGeorge School of Law so Sherry could nurse the baby. Joseph paid us well and was appreciative of our time. He was a good father. He sent his girls to a Montessori school in their early years, and he paid for their college. While they were young, he paid for horseback riding, skating, and supported them in whatever they did. He cooked for them, kept a clean house in a neat yard. Through all this, Joe never forgot to visit mom and pop and come to the house on holidays. When mom and dad passed away, he came to visit my sister, and I cried. He always told us before he left, let me know if you need anything. If there's anything I can do. He always left us hugs hugs when he arrived and left. This is from Anise. As I sit down to write this letter, I realize there's only one place to start. I wish my deepest sympathy, sorrow, and pain, and pain relief to all of the victims. I cannot imagine what any of you endured. I'm simply writing this letter to tell you I do not know the person known as the Golden State Killer. At no time did I see anything that would have led me to believe that. I know him as my Uncle Joe, whom I love clearly. My Uncle Joe was always my hero, the one I couldn't wait to see. I hunted as a child with him. We went crawdad fishing in the canal, ate pizzas, got ice cream, just plain had good times. We camped together as a family. He always made it a point to attend any special occasions as I had. My wedding and my daughter's first birthday to name a couple. I always felt that my uncle loved me and still do. I personally feel that someone else is inside of him who I do not know. Our last visit was three weeks before his arrest. We spent much time together talking, and I will cherish it forever. Uncle Joe, I will always remember your last words to me. I love you, sweetie, and I'll see you soon. The day we found out about the arrest, my mom called me, and I rushed right over to her house as I heard she collapsed. The detectives were there. We've been harassed by media investigators and people who blame us for something we had no knowledge of. I believed I knew my uncle and I'm still in shock. I feel for my cousins and family as nobody understands and we try to make sense of it, but you just can't. I do not know the person who committed those crimes. I know my uncle who I love and always love. There's so much more I could say about what a wonderful uncle, dad, son, brother, and great uncle to my kids he's, he was. My heart is crushed and I will never be the same trusting person. I no longer have trust for anyone. It's really hard to end this letter, but I guess all I can say is I'm very sorry to the victims. I can't imagine what they went through. I love my Uncle Joe as I knew him, and that will never change because I can't wrap my head around the fact that someone so caring and loving could have done those things. So those were statements that were provided by family members, friends, nieces of uh, Joseph D'Angelo. And one theme, you know, that you hear throughout is that he was loving and caring and kind and all these things to his family. And then you have this monster on the other side of it. And the the biggest takeaway I had from, from that uh, is just that he was extremely good at living a double life. And lastly, the entire audience starts laughing when... The final words from the niece were read, I love you, sweetie, I'll see you soon. Except he won't because he's going to prison. So they all bursted out laughing. Um, did you catch that? I, did, I couldn't hear the laughter on my side, but it must have been quick. But yeah, it's... It is, it's quiet. You, you'll hear this uh, stirring uh, during the, that portion of the letter being read. It, it's hard to hear because they're not mic'd up in the audience. And... You just hear like a lot of commotion, and it's them laughing at those laugh those last words that are said, which you know it was just it was extremely ironic and 
it's just crazy. You know, he, he has these family members who love him to death and, you know, he obviously took really good care of those that he loved, but at the same time, he, you know, was a complete maniac. His niece on several occasions said, I I can't imagine the monster that you're portrayed as, well, not even portrayed as, but the monster that you really are because of how he, he treated all of his, you know, extended family to to me that these are just more victims. I mean, they had no idea who this guy was until he's captured. And then they learn about everything that he's done in secret and hiding, living that double life. And some people might argue the point that they're victims, but they really are because they had no clue. And now their lives are turned upside down because who they thought was this all-American dad, uncle, grandfather, he really wasn't. Exactly. You make a fantastic point. This guy, his family was just as much a victim of his crimes as the actual victims of his crimes. They were in a different way, and maybe a little less or so, you know, but at the same time, you know, these people were affected too. There was not a single person who was touched by this guy who wasn't affected by what he did, whether it was victims of his crimes or friends and family who were victims of this person leading a double life right in front of their eyes. It just goes to show you how manipulative he was. And still is. We just mentioned that. He still is manipulative. He's trying to portray this this frail old man who can't even get around without a wheelchair, and it's just it's just another one of his ruse. He he, he he's perfectly for a seventy four year old seventy four year old man, he is very healthy, very flexible, very nimble, and can still I hate to say it, but if he was still free and had not been captured, if he got that inkling to do this again, maybe not at his age, because I'm sure his strength has declined, but he could still harm someone. Oh, he absolutely could. One hundred percent. You're a hundred percent right. And you know, it goes back to something Paul Holes was saying the entire time after they captured him. This guy was on a motorcycle doing, you know, well over the speed limit, just flying around, doing God knows what. He was jumping around in his garage while they were watching him. He was doing all of these things. Just he wasn't a frail old man. And they were nervous when they went to capture him that he could do something, you know, and they took it extremely seriously. He wasn't just a guy sitting in a wheelchair. You know, he was fully capable of causing harm to somebody if if he had the ability to he could have and they took him very seriously and they should have and you know he he clearly has the abilities to do harm and he deserves to to rot in the rest of his days in prison which is i mean it, it's kind of if anyone deserved the death penalty it's this guy and unfortunately in California they they took that away and at the expense of having an extremely expensive trial with the same outcome you know, he, he just pled guilty and here we are. So you have some audio regarding the sentencing. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, we'll, we'll roll right into that. The, the sentencing part of the trial is very long, but there, there are some comments at the beginning and the end that I really wanted to highlight from the judge. So we might do a little bit of skipping around, but here we go. As he has desired since the beginning of this case, Mr. D'Angelo has accepted responsibility for his crimes by pleading guilty and has even admitted uncharged crimes. He's now prepared to be. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chris. With respect to the approval of this disposition, the court approves of this plea. I have considered the comments of counsel facts in this case, as well as well as the overall circumstances of this disposition, I've considered the defendant's age, the fact there are inmates currently on death row and have been so for 30 years. I have considered the fact that there is currently a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Furthermore, this disposition does give survivors and their loved ones an opportunity to have their words heard, not to endure the imaginable, imaginable emotions uh, that they would experience by sitting through such a trial. Finally, with this resolution, the California taxpayers have been saved tens of millions of dollars. For the reasons stated, the court approves this plea. However, 
The court is not saying that Mr. D'Angelo does not deserve to have the death penalty imposed. It merely means the court feels it would never come to pass. In truth, all the parties should be commended in reaching this resolution for the result of this trial and a plea of guilty is the same. Mr. D'Angelo will spend the rest of his natural life and ultimately meet his death confined in the, in the, the, behind the walls of the state penitentiary. I generally don't make comments at sentencing, but I am going to uh, make an exception. Having approved this plea, I will now move on to the imposition of sentence. Mr. D'Angelo, I've listened for the last three days from the people you've terrorized and their friends and their family. Their impact statement will always be with me. I was moved by their courage, their grace, their strength, all qualities you clearly lack. I know whatever words I say today will pale in comparison to the words the survivors have spoken. They need to be said. The fundamental principle of law that justice delayed is justice denied is no truer than in this case. But for the dogged persistence and perseverance of law enforcement, their survivors, their families, and citizen detectives, this case may have resolved, remained unsolved. There are many heroes like Carol Daly, Paul Holes, Michelle McNamara, and many heroes that I don't even know that brought this day here. I have little doubt, but for the tenacity and unwavering quest for justice exhibited by Sacramento District Attorney's Office, Emery Schubert, you may have escaped earthly justice altogether. If I listened to the survivors and I've watched you, I could not help but wondering, what are you thinking? Are you capable of comprehending the pain and anguish you have caused? To quote the great American novelist and California native John Steinbeck, to a man born without a conscience, a soul-stricken man must seem ridiculous. To a criminal, honesty is foolish. You must not forget that a monster is merely a variation and that to a monster, the norm is monstrous. Mr. Steinbeck seems to think that monsters are born and not created. I'm not so sure, but one thing I do know, when a person commits monstrous acts, they need to be locked away or they can never harm another innocent person. It is my sincere hope that with the opportunity to be heard these last few days and the sentence to be imposed, survivors will, the survivors will find some resolution, will find some peace, and hopefully find some justice, however imperfect. Mr. D'Angelo, I sentence you to the following. Count one, the charge of murder in the first degree of Claude Snelling, a violation of Penal Code Section 187, the court hereby sentences the defendant to imprisonment for life. By operational law, the minimum parole eligibility for this offense is seven years. Regarding the weapon enhancement that in the course of that murder, that you personally used a firearm, a violation of Penal Code Section 1222.5, the court imposes a sentence of not less years, less than five years to run concurrent with a sentence just imposed for the first degree murder of Claude Snelling. Count one will run concurrent with a sentence to be announced in count two by operation of law. Count two, for the charge of murder in the first degree of Katie Majori, a violation of Penal Code Section 187, and in conjunction with the Multiple Murder Special Circumstance Penal Code 190.2 paren A paren C 3 and Penal Code Section 190.2 paren C paren 5, this court hereby sentence the defendants to life without the possibility of parole. Regarding the weapons enhancement, that in the course of that murder, the defendant personally used a firearm, a violation of Penal Code Section 1222.5, the court imposes a sentence of two years to run concurrent with a sentence just imposed by operation of law. The sentence in, in count two is to run concurrent to the sentences on all pre-1979 offenses. However, the life without the possibility of parole sentence as to counts two will run consecutive to all post-1979 life without the possibility of parole sentences in counts four through 13 and count 26. Count three, for the charge of murder in the first degree of Brian Majori, a violation of Penal Code Section 187 and in conjunction with a multiple murder special circumstance code, 
190.2, paren C, paren 3, as well as penal code section 190, paren C, paren 5. The court hereby sentences you to life without the possibility of parole. Regarding the weapons enhancement in the course of that murder, the defendant personally used a firearm, a violation of penal code section 122.5. The court imposes a sentence of two years to run concurrent with a sentence just imposed by operation of law. The sentence in count three to run concurrent with count two by operation of law. Count four, for the charge of murder in the first degree, Deborah Manning, a violation of penal code section 187, that murder having been committed while engaged in the commission of a rape, violation of penal code section 190.2, paren C, paren 3, and burglary, violation of penal code section 190.2, paren C, paren 3, paren 5, the court hereby sentenced the defendant to an additional life without the possibility of parole. Regarding the weapons enhancement, in the course of that murder, the defendant personally used a firearm, a violation of penal code section 122.5, the court imposes an additional sentence of two years, years to run consecutive. The sentence to count four to be served consecutive to count two and consecutive to sentence to be imposed in counts five through 13 and count 26. The aggregate sentence for Joseph James D'Angelo is the following. Counts 2 and 14 through 13, he's committed to the state prison for the indeterminate term of 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The sentence to run consecutive to the indeterminate life term for count 26. The weapons enhancements in counts 4 through 5 excuse me, four, five, seven, and 26 consist of an aggregate determinant term of eight years to run consecutive. Another way to state the sentence is as follows. Mr. D'Angelo is sentenced to a total of 11 life without the possibility of parole um, sentences, plus an additional life sentence, plus an additional eight years. This is the absolute maximum sentence the court is able to impose under the law. And while the court has no power to make a determination of where the defendant is imprisoned, the survivors have spoken clearly. The defendant deserves no mercy. So that concludes the sentencing portion of the trial. And there were 26 counts in total. And the theme, the first few counts that were covered were the murders where he was given life without the possibility of parole. But the judge at the, at the end there really, you know, summed up the aggregate sentence, which is 11 total life sentences followed by an additional life sentence plus eight years. So, you know, the good news is this guy's never going to see the light of day again. Absolutely. That is, that is the good news. In addition to that, as we were talking you know, some of the different jurisdictions were giving their statements before. And, you know, so that's when they showed video of Joe in his jail cell doing his uh, best Spider-Man impression and climbing up the walls. And they also uh, they also alluded to the fact that he was performing um, crude acts, if you will, towards a guard, meaning he was likely masturbating in his jail cell while staring at somebody but you don't know who that somebody is or or any context to that statement so I, I found that to be quite disturbing and strange this punk needs to be put away for the rest of his life he's just a disgusting human so I'm I'm glad to see that happen obviously in this case I do wish they had the death penalty but they don't I wish they had a death penalty as well it, it's Death penalty is always, we've talked about it multiple times, it's always a controversial decision or a ruling, but there are some people that just need to be put down, and this guy is definitely one of them. I almost, as hateful as it sounds, I almost wish they would give him a piece of rope and let him tie his last knot. Absolutely. I don't think he would. I think he's too cowardly to do it. Yeah, I do too. But So one last thing we had from this was uh, Sharon Huddle, uh, Joe's ex-wife. They had been separated, I believe, since 1991. And side note here, during that process, so they were like legally separated, but they weren't divorced. They somehow managed to divorce and put all the assets in her name 
So none of the victims are really going to get anything. And as you heard there, Janelle Cruz's murder is the only one who's even eligible for anything, and she can take him to civil court for restitution. But Sharon was able to obtain all the assets and spread them amongst the family. And I mean, honestly, like, it sucks for the victims. But we said earlier, you know, the family was as much of a victim of him as anyone else. And it's not like he's profiting off of it, but it does suck for those who cannot go after him for any of his assets or anything like that. But uh, you were going to read the statement that she provided. So here it is. As David stated, this is Sharon Huddle's statement in full. Quote, The defendant's criminal actions have had a devastating and pervasive effect on my life and my family. I will never be the same person. I now live every day with the knowledge of how he attacked and severely damaged hundreds of innocent people's lives and murdered 13 innocent people who were loved and have now been missed for 40 years or more. I live every day with post-traumatic distress, where any unexpected noise or movement of any person or object can be perceived by my mind as a threat to me. Simple everyday experiences such as a car moving from one lane into another lane behind your car can bring fear to me. Once while shopping at Trader Joe's grocery store, a hand touched my forearm while I was looking into a freezer. My heart began to race and my body jolted. I was terrified that I was about to be harmed, when in reality, someone I knew just wanted to say hello to me. I have lost my ability to trust people. I trusted the defendant when he told me he had to work, or was going pheasant hunting, or going to visit his parents hundreds of miles away. I worked graveyard shifts at Jack in the Box fast food restaurant and a place and at Placer County Juvenile Hall. At times, I studied late into the night at my law school. When I was not around, I trusted he was doing what he was told me he was doing. Now, without the ability to trust, my relationships with other people are severely impacted. I wish that nothing I say here will detract from any person's impact statement. End quote. That was uh, Sharon Huddle's statement in full. She's also went on to say that she's been, I'm sure she's been harassed by the media relentlessly, but I think this is one of the only full statements that she's given. She may have given a brief one in 2018 when he was captured, but she's she's time and time again asked for her, her family's privacy. Yeah. The one thing out of that statement that I wanted to mention was she talked about how she trusted he was doing what he was saying he was doing, and he mentioned he would go visit his parents hundreds of miles away. That likely lines up with when he would go to Southern California, stalk victims, and then eventually murder them. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's sick. It's, it's incredibly sick. And, and I believe her. I don't, I don't know how much she knew. This guy was so secretive, and he was really good at covering his tracks for, for law enforcement. You know, you don't commit over 50 rapes and not get caught by being sloppy. So, you know, he had to have been able to keep it from his his wife at the time. And maybe she suspected something, wasn't able to prove it, and then that's when she, you know, finally separated from him. Or he was just that much of a freaking maniac that she, I mean, imagine. There's a realistic scenario here where this guy is just that batshit crazy that you just can't be married to him. I don't know why they stayed separated versus divorcing. Who knows? There's a lot of things that go on there. She is a divorce attorney. So maybe maybe there's a really good reason that she did that. I don't know. I'm not a legal expert, and I'm not going to pretend to be. It it just it just rolls back to the the statement that we both made that the family is just as much victims. I mean, he he ruined their lives too. He ruined lots and lots of lives. Absolutely. So in closing, I just wanted to say Joe was a manipulative liar, a sociopath. He was abusive. He was able to play a split personality where his family and friends would love him his coworkers as well, and he was supposedly a solid family man. But however, there was a darker side where he murdered 13 victims and committed over 50 separate incidents of rape. Uh, those 13 victims were Claude Snelling, Brian and Katie Majori, Robert Offerman, Deborah Manning, Charlene and Lyman Smith, Keith and Patty Harrington, Manuela Wittun, Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez, and finally Janelle Cruz. And I hope all of these victims can rest in peace knowing that this piece of trash is now put away for the rest of his life and that he can no longer be in the minds of anyone controlling their thoughts and having that power over them that he so dearly sought. Mr. D'Angelo would like to make a brief statement. D'Angelo?
I've listened all your statements. Each one of them. And I'm truly sorry to everyone I've heard. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, sir. Stay safe. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.